your recovery doesn't happen overnight. And you're not going to wake up one morning after having a stroke or after having a traumatic experience. You don't wake up overnight and things are over. But I do find that having patience and giving yourself grace, you know, giving yourself that time and going, you don't need to be perfect anymore. You need to just get through each day and you know, have that ability to go, I'm going to be patient with this. If this takes three months, it takes three months. If it takes three hours, it takes three hours. If this takes three years, it doesn't matter. I'm Jamie Mo Crazy, and you're listening to Life Gets Mo Crazy, where we'll hear from people who either been through a trauma or helped someone else through. Listen and learn strategies you can implement in your life so when a metaphorical avalanche slides you down the mountain of life you can climb an alternative peak with the best view i'm here today with alex murphy and i'm so excited because she is a two-time dancing on ice champion a tv presenter and a familiar face across uk television and press plus she encountered an unexpected trauma and has built a fabulous life after it so i'm so excited to talk about when your life changed in the blink of an eye and how you rebuilt the amazing life that you have and so thank you so much for joining us alex oh thank you so much for having me i'm so excited to be on this is great yeah so as i mentioned a little bit you had a bang you encountered a stroke at 24 years old. And I believe you were on the ice when that happened. Can you take us back? Yes. So I was 24 years old working on cruise ships. I'm actually a competitive and professional figure skater. Very strange job, I know. Much like yours. I mean, not many people are are professional winter athletes. So I was actually skating and I had been competitively skating my whole life up until I was 17 years old. And then I turned pro and I went on to Disney on Ice and Royal Caribbean cruise ships and shows in Mexico all around the world. And while I was on the ship, I actually had a stroke while I was in my skates and unfortunately ended up getting medically evacuated off the ship uh, later on to find out that the stroke was caused by a hole in my heart. And yeah, I wasn't reading, wasn't writing, wasn't speaking for days and Now I'm back to normal and things are good, but I did have a stroke while I was on the ice, which was really scary. Isn't it interesting that you had a stroke on the ice as a professional dancer and I had a traumatic brain injury on the mountain as a professional skier. So both of us were in our elements and enjoying life completely when all of a sudden it just changed dramatically in an instant. It's not like you prepare for this to happen and it's not like it's in your thoughts. I'm sure the day you had the stroke, you had no thoughts of having a stroke. Like what was your mindset the day of the stroke? You know, on, on the day of it, I can't even think about where my brain was at then. But when I look back at it and I realize like weeks beforehand, there were a couple symptoms that I realized, you know, terrible migraines and massive sensitivity to light and things like that. But as a skater and as an athlete, you're like kind of taught to push through stuff. So, you know, chest pain, back pain, things like that, that I guess could have been seen as symptoms. But when you're an athlete, you're just told, you know, that's muscle ailments and you have a headache because you're tired. I was nearing the end of my contract. I had 10 days left on the ship until I was headed home to my family for my nice little winter break that I had planned. And 
yeah, un- unfortunately, I, like I didn't on the day of it. I woke up, I put my skates on, I went to work, I did the first show, I came back, went to my room in between for my forty-five minute break onto the second show, and as the second show started, everything was fine. Got through the entire show, skated perfectly, had a clean run. We would say like I had a clean skate, got off the ice and actually even was complimented by the choreographer. And he was like, you were in the zone, you were on, got off. And when I went to take my skate off, I realized that my foot was numb and I couldn't really feel my right foot, but I was like, oh, I'm just so tired. And it must be colder in here than it is normally because, you know, you get that numbness with your feet and your ski boots or in your skates. Like you just know that feeling. And I was like, this is really weird. And I bent down to untie my skate and I realized that my my hand, I couldn't really untie my skates. And I was like, that is just weird. Like my hands are even cold. Like I'm not feeling my my right hand very well. And then I took my costume off. And when I took my costume off, I ended up walking into the bathroom. And I went in there and I looked at myself in the mirror and I had taken off my costume and tried to hang it on the rack and realized I couldn't really get my arm up to the rack to lift it up. And so I put the costume on the chair and looked at myself in the mirror when I went into the toilet. And I was like, I have no idea who I am. I didn't know who I was. And then I realized I really couldn't feel my right hand, really couldn't feel my right side. And I started to bang my hand against the porcelain sink in the bathroom. And that's when one of the the members of the show came in and opened the door on me and was like, Ali, is everything okay? And I kind of collapsed and was just kind of in his arms and they put me on a seat. And I was, you know, I always like to joke and say, I had my stroke while I was in my skates and nothing else. You know, I was I was literally in a bra and my pants and my fishnets and my skates. And I was like, oh God, what a what a morbid experience. What an embarrassing, traumatic experience for a 24-year-old to be nakedly having a stroke. Like it's funny now, but at the time I just remember, wow, I was more mortified and thinking about that than I was thinking about, oh my gosh, I can't speak, I can't read, I can't write, I can't communicate with anyone around me at this point. It was very, very scary. And it sounds like you had memories of most of the experience. All of the experience. A lot of people have strokes and every bit of your brain could be affected differently. So mine was on the back left part of my brain, which affected the right side of my body, which was speech, mobility, cognitive thought, like anything like that. But I essentially was in a bubble. So I couldn't get out of the bubble to explain what was going on, to explain I couldn't feel my right side. But I was there. I was fully there. Wow. Yeah, it seems like you either remember none of it or you're like hyper vigilant. And so then it seems like you were taken care of right away. Take us along the journey of after you get to the medical ward and the next couple months afterwards. Yeah, I got down to the medical ward and I had like nine days left, something ridiculous, like just that last crossing and then I was going to be done. And our last port of call before the crossing, before those eight days at sea was Tenerife. And they just brought me down and it was in the afternoon and they started to, you know, do the testing that they do where they check your, your vitals. And yeah, I remember like a bunch of doctors came in and one of my skating colleagues came in. My skates were still on. They were trying to like, it sounds crazy, but like be decent with me, like cover me with a blanket. I was in a bra and my, you know, we would say your knickers here in the UK, my knickers and my fishnets and my skates. And as I laid down, I actually got some like 
real bit of consciousness back. And I started saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm okay. And then I calmed down. They took the skates off and that, you know, I sat up, they said, can you sit up? And I, I was communicating. I was like, yes, I'm fine. I'm fine. And as I sat up again, everything went. So no speech, no anything, the face drooping again, the whole facial, everything went wrong. Couldn't lift my arm. They were trying, they were right here on my face and I couldn't see anything out of my peripheral. And when they did lay me back down, they ended up giving me a shot of Valium because they were like, we don't know what's happening to her. So the Valium calmed me down and I fell asleep. And then when I woke back up about an hour and a half, two hours later, I couldn't speak or couldn't do anything. So they gave me another shot of Valium, put me to sleep again. So I was in and out of consciousness for probably about like four or five hours after the fact. And after the second shot of Valium is when I started to come back to again and started to realize what was happening, where I was. And I remember all of it, but I just, I don't remember having the speech or anything, being able to say anything to anyone until, you know, like the middle of the night when they had come in and asked me, do you, do you know your name? What's your name? And nothing was coming out and I couldn't say or verbalize anything. So they gave me a whiteboard and to see if I could draw it and I couldn't write anything. I vaguely remember writing an A like a, like a squiggly line and then a, a line in between and a squiggly line at the end. I knew my name was actually Alexandra. So I kind of like had this thought in my head, like if I can communicate with them by writing it, they'll understand I'm in here. I'm okay. And yeah, after that second shot of volume, essentially, I read the sign that said restroom, wash your hands in the middle of the night. And the nurse came running in and was like, okay, she's here. She's awake. What can we do now? And then they started going through all the tests of like, who are you? What's your name? Can you speak? speak. And I started to like answer questions and things. And that's kind of, I slowly came out of it throughout the middle of the night. And then when the ship landed in Tenerife before we crossed, they actually got me off really quickly and put me in a taxi and sent me for an MRI right away. So it was really scary. It was really bizarre. And thinking back about it now, I'm just like, how did that even happen? (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like such a bizarre thing that happened. It sounds like there were some triggers that maybe you could have foreseen it. But you, you you don't really know that it's coming. And like you were saying, you just put it off to being tired and being an athlete and sore because you're right. We do have to kind of push those things off, which helps us in our recovery in the way that like I understood the concept of like setting attainable goals to reach my growth goals. Yeah, it's it's amazing tools. You're given amazing tools as an athlete. And we are fortunate, you and I are so fortunate to have been athletes for the recovery process because I speak with so many stroke survivors that they're not athletes. So it seems so unattainable. But if you've been an athlete since you were a kid and you've kind of, you know, had, like you said, these attainable goals, you kind of know that one thing leads to the the next. So when you're in the recovery period after the first six weeks, you're not like, oh, this is over. This is as good as it's going to get. I'm still recovering every day and it's been 10 years. And that's one of the big things is that you're still recovering and it's been 10 years and you live an amazing life now. So take us through rebuilding your life. So after, you know, after being landed in Tenerife and doing medical tests and actually, unfortunately, like the ship has to leave at a certain time. So I had my MRI and they were like, the good news is it's not a brain tumor. When I looked at people's faces, I could see that they knew that something was wrong. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have a mirror on myself all the time. I didn't know how 
drooping my face was or what was happening. But they end up saying, we have to leave you here. We have to leave you in Tenerife where everybody speaks Spanish and we're putting you in a neuro ward. And I ended up going back to the ship, packing up all of my stuff that had been there for years. I was on that ship on and off for three years and having suitcases shoved into the back of a taxi and then being left by myself in in the middle of this Spanish-speaking country and not knowing what the hell was going on. And I remember just going, oh my God, what am I going to do? And calling my mom and speaking to my mom and dad and them saying, don't worry, we're coming. We will be there tomorrow. And the ship feeds information. Obviously, they were trying their best to take care of me. So they were feeding information back to my mom and the doctors were feeding information back to my mom. And I had a cell phone. But back in the day, like 10 years ago, like it wasn't like you could just hop on FaceTime. Like we were texting and emailing each other. So they did, you know, take care of me really well. But I stayed in the neuro ward for nine days there. And on the 10th day, they finally flew me home and they flew me to Miami. And in Miami was where all of the top doctors were that were going to handle my case and sort out what was wrong with me. And by that time, they didn't let my mom fly out to Tenerife because they kept saying every day she's coming home. So my mom met me at the airport when I landed. She was in a car. She was already there, took me to the hotel set me up at the next day, right, to see all these amazing doctors in, in Miami. So I was rushed into every single doctor's appointment you can imagine. And So when they did take me in for the testings, they would read the scans and they'd be like, this is strange. There's all this shadowing. We need to get this checked again. So then I did more tests and more tests. And then as their test came back again, after these like, you know, two weeks of testing, the doctors were like, we are just surprised. Like, you're just a miracle. You've had a stroke. And I was like, you're wrong. (laughs) Because if you have a stroke, you don't look like this after 14 days. And they were like, you are just you are just a miracle case. And then, you know, as they did their digging and got more information back from the doctors on the ship, they found out the doctors on the ship had given the Valium. The Valium had broken up the blood clot. It was just a fluke. It was just luck. It was all these like circumstances of a perfect storm where everything went wrong so that everything went right. You know, they had they given me Valium and I had had a brain bleed, I'd be dead. They just happened to have done everything perfect for my case that saved my life. And Yeah. Then they found out that it was a hole in my heart. So they kept doing more invasive testing. Then they did find that I had a hole in my heart that was most likely there since birth, most likely a hereditary thing. But that had led to the blood clot and that had led to bad blood being pumped into my system and not enough oxygen reaching my brain for my whole adult life. And they went in and they said, we have to operate. We have to operate now or you will live on blood thinners for the rest of your life and you'll never skate again and we'll be monitoring you forever. But if if this surgery is successful, you can live your life again. And the day that I found that out was actually the day I found out that I was going to be going on the Dutch version of Dancing on Ice, which is almost like Dancing with the Stars, but on ice, if that makes sense. So I was like, oh, I got to get out of here. I was like, I got to get this. I don't want to do surgery. I got to get out of here. And I had a lovely, lovely cardiac surgeon and she all just was like, I will help. I'll do what I can do. And they did the surgery two days later. And that's great that you had the surgery because then you did go on to dancing on ice and recovery. Yeah, I I had the surgery two days later and then Three weeks from that, I didn't want to tell anyone. So my deadline for my contract, I had to be in the Netherlands a month after my surgery. So we just didn't tell anyone. And I set 
I sat back on the ice. It was three weeks to the day of my stroke, but it was technically like a week after my surgery. I got back on the ice for the first time and it was horrible. It was an absolute nightmare. I cried the whole time. I hated it, but I knew that this was such a great opportunity that I needed to get back on the ice. So I didn't actually skate in my recovery period of that break before I went to the Netherlands. I just said, you know, it's like riding a bike. When I get there, I'll be able to do it. So I just got back on the bike when I got there and I arrived to the Netherlands and basically just wung it, if that makes sense. I just was like, I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm just going. And I told my partner that I was skating with, who was this lovely, lovely Dutch man who was like six foot four and he was a reality TV star. And I was like, look, I just went through a really traumatic experience. We're going to get to know each other really quickly over the next few weeks. So I, you need to know I've got, you know, stitches in my groin and spots in my body that are really sore. So if you lift me, I, I might flinch. And I just want you to know, like, I've had a heart surgery and I actually had a stroke. And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, yeah, it was a month ago. And he was like, okay. And then he obviously became like a big brother and was like, I, I will take care of you. And yeah, we won the show three months to the day. And you are a digital influencer now and avid supporter of the Stroke Association. But I believe you weren't very public about your stroke right away. Yeah. So the hardest bit about, I think, you know, having a TBI and, you know, being a stroke survivor, the word stroke is horrific. I'm sure as you know, like when people talk to you about any brain injury, the word saying brain injury scares the crap out of people. So I obviously didn't want it to affect my career. And I was like, if I can get back skating, you know, dancing on ice was one thing. It was a lot of media and it was a lot of, they're these, they're non-professional skaters. So the level of what they're doing is quite easy. So it was a good way to almost ease myself back into like competitive sport again. But when I decided to go back on contract, I realized if I tell people what's happened to me, I'm a liability. There's a strange prejudice against it because they don't want the, you know, they don't want the risk on their own hands. And I I completely understood that. So I just kind of kept my mouth shut about it for like five years. And then when I got the job on the UK version of Dancing on Ice, I had to obviously give my medical records and I got the job. And then I went to the physio and I spoke to her and it was her actually that said to me, all right, well, let's like really, really pay attention to your aftercare and what we're doing with you. And like, you know, there were certain instances on the show where I would be in my skates all day long, my feet would go numb and it would trigger a response in my, in more in my mental health where I was thinking, oh my gosh, am I having another stroke? And that was extremely hard. And I would go to the physio and speak to her and she was brilliant. But after the show, obviously it got out that I had had a stroke to media outlets over here. They love to dig up dirt about people and they wanted to know like who was this new American girl coming into the scene on the TV show over here. And so they found out that I had had a stroke. And after they did, I was asked by a bunch of charities over here to like talk about it. So I talked about it for the first time on a channel for a, a company called Different Strokes and they're a charity company over here in the UK. And I just told my story for the first time. And that kind of led to like this cathartic experience of giving information about what had happened. <laughs> yeah. And I do recognize like the liability and want to protect yourself from companies. However, for the same thing, we need people like you to use your platform to share what you went through with the stroke. Because most people who have encountered some kind of brain injury, like you said, it's not glamorous. It's not sexy. It's not really something that people want to talk about. So you don't really hear 
the successful stories. Your story is a success story. And so there are so many people who need to hear those stories so they can make changes in their life and they can believe that they can create new outcomes that they want to be living. And and you feel guilty that you survived. And for me, so many people would say, wow, you're so successful. Your recovery was so successful. And I was like, what? Because I lived through an unexpected near death, like I'm successful. That doesn't make you successful. That just makes me alive. So I felt like I quite often didn't deserve it. And allowing other individuals to have those opportunities has helped a lot. And so now we have the opportunity to use that platform to give inspiration to other individuals that yes, they can if, if they take the steps. Absolutely. And it's, it's one of those things that you end up, you are a disservice if you don't try to help those of you, you know, those others that wish they could. You know, my, my mom always says like, you're lucky you got your voice back. You literally couldn't speak for ages and you got your voice back. And now you have to speak for those that can't. So if you don't use your platform to speak for those who can't, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. So what would be last words of wisdom that you would leave our audience with? (sighs) Last words of wisdom. I mean, obviously this podcast probably reaches more than just brain injury survivors. It probably reaches athletes, reaches everyone. But I think one thing that I've always taken from my recovery that has helped me in my life is, is that about patience? You know, things don't happen overnight. Your recovery doesn't happen overnight. And you're not going to wake up one morning after having a stroke or after having a traumatic experience. You don't wake up overnight and things are over. But I do find that having patience and giving yourself grace, you know, giving yourself that time and going, you don't need to be perfect anymore. You need to just get through each day and you know, have that ability to go, I'm going to be patient with this. If this takes three months, it takes three months. If it takes three hours, it takes three hours. If this takes three years, it doesn't matter. I'm going to give myself that grace. You're in competition with yourself, you know, horse blinders on. It is just one road and it's your life and you get to do what you want to do with it. So just be patient with yourself in your recovery. My recovery is ongoing. I am 10 years down the line and it is ongoing. That's great. And you are such a big spotlight figure. And if you're such a big figure in the media like that, people look at you and are like, oh, her life is great and successful and happy. And it is all those things. And you still have to work on things. And you never really expect as a kid that you will have a trauma that will define your life. But because it changes your life does not mean that you have to be living a worse life. Yes. And it doesn't have to be the thing that, like you said, it does define your life, but it doesn't have to define you. Like my stroke is part of my life. It's part of my story, but it does not define me. You know, I'm, it's a chapter. The page has been turned and now I look at it as, you know, I'm trying to build a career and a life that's completely different. And I love sometimes when I meet people and they're like, I had no idea you had a stroke. And now that I know, I'm like, I'm just, I've been looking up all of your stuff and like, this is inspiring to me. I love when people tell me they didn't know that I had a stroke. I love that it didn't define how they met me. And yeah, I feel really fortunate to be able to connect with people now. And selfishly, it's like my own, it's my own form of therapy. I never saw a therapist. I never spoke to anyone after my stroke. And yeah, selfishly, it is like my own form of therapy. I feel like when I give back to people and I speak to them about my stroke, it's like cathartic in a way. It's really helpful for me as well. 
Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show because we need to hear these stories and we need to believe that there's a possibility to better our lives in any way that we want to. You can take steps to accomplish your dreams and climb alternative peaks after unexpected trauma. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And it was amazing to talk with you. Oh, thank you so much, Jamie. And I love what you're doing over there out in America. I wish I was there. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to Life Gets Mo Crazy. I hope you learned some new ways to climb an alternative peak after an unexpected trauma by listening to this episode. If you loved it, which I really hope you did, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your family and friends. If you would like to follow my Mo Crazy Life, well, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, or my Facebook accounts at Jamie Mo Crazy or hashtag Mo Crazy Strong. So stay tuned for our next episode. Each episode is the last Friday of each month. And in every episode, you will learn something special and something new on how to climb an alternative peak. So thanks again for tuning in and go have a mo crazy life until we talk again.